Media Focus with Paul Blanchard. This week, Pearson has sold the Financial Times to Japanese media company Nikkei for £840 million. What are the implications? The average UK Twitter user was in favour of Scottish independence, voted for Ed Miliband in the general election, and now supports Jeremy Corbyn for leader. Is social media over-representing certain views and voices? And Laura Koonsberg is the BBC's new political editor. What will she bring to the role, and how has the job itself evolved? And joining us as usual are two of the media's best and brightest. Caroline Crampton is online editor at the New Statesman, and Barney Guyton is news editor at Newsweek Europe. Media Focus. So first up, just three days after The Guardian's Roy Greenslade called the rumours speculative nonsense, Pearson has shocked the media world by selling the FT to Japanese giant Nikkei for 840 million quid, and with the promise that the paper will stay editorial independent. Some journalists have raised concerns about the speed of the deal. Michael Woodford, known for blowing the whistle on corruption at Japanese tech group Olympus, said that he was worried about the new owner and called Nikkei the corporate voice of Japan. Barney, do you have any concerns and what do you think to the sale price? Oh, I don't think we should be that worried, mainly because I think Nikkei will be very aware of the powerful brand they've bought and the last thing they want to do is seriously damage that brand by being seen to influence its uh, editorial. I know there was some concern over whether, whether they were going to codify its independence, editorial independence, but obviously it's something that we want to keep an eye on, but there'd be such a big backlash from FT journalists if there was an attempt to influence editorial that and I, I don't think they'd do it. It would damage the brand so badly. I imagine as well there's going to be, you know, a lot of FT journalists testing this out and uh, going after stories specifically to test this out, you know, and uh, people seem to be pretty confident in, in the independence and senior editorial. Caroline, no one seemed to see this coming. I mean, did you have any hint whatsoever or were you shocked as the rest of us? I was pretty surprised, to be honest. Um, I know there'd been some kind of whispers over the last couple of years that Pearson was putting a lot of effort into its educational publishing, that side of its business, where it was doing quite well. But I don't think anyone quite foresaw that that meant they would be getting rid of the FT kind of imbalance to that. And as you say, uh, Roy Greenside, who's generally considered to be a pretty sharp commentator, uh, just three days before quashed any rumours that this was going to happen. So why do you think they have sold then? I mean, I appreciate we're not board members of Pearson, we can only speculate, but, it, you know, the, the paper's extremely well respected, it's making money. Why do you think they've got rid of it? Um, the, I mean, interestingly, the FT itself published several different stories that were kind of graded in terms of how official they were about mm. the the function and obviously sev- several of their commentators took it on as well but in one of the more official stories they said that it was a kind of a mutual sort of parting as interests had diverged the i think the the hint being that pearson was going very firmly for its educational publishing where it sees greater profit margins than you're ever going to be able to make with a newspaper um, and that it was time for the FT to kind of find a new owner who wanted to take that on Um, because I mean they have owned it since 1957 Mm. so it's been a long partnership I don't think there's any suggestion yet that or even at all that there's any kind of acrimony about it. But do you think that Nikkei have an ulterior motive? I mean clearly there's uh, many journalists are saying that Nikkei is the corporate voice of Japan do you think there's some kind of strategic work here? I don't know much if I'm honest about the kind of corporate workings of Japan but I have seen a few suggestions that I found interesting that um, this kind of acquisition of a foreign competitor or a, a foreign company in the same space is kind of classic Japanese business operation that going back to the 60s and 70s it's you know it's how Japanese car manufacturers kind of competed with British manufacturers and even put some of them out of business that this is acquiring someone in the same space both sort of uh, burnishes your own credentials but also neutralizes potential competitors.
funny, when I read that the FT was due to be uh, bought out, as it were, my first paper that I turned to was the FT, and I thought that was quite uh, a... For, it's a kind of, you know, it's that meta question, isn't it, as to how they're going to cover their own acquisition, but I was quite pleased with their coverage. Were you? Yeah, they, they wrote uh, a lot about it, a lot of interesting uh, comment about it as well, quite uh, quite honest in, in a lot of ways. And they, they were quite honest as well about parting company, and, it, you know, just it, they weren't... Pearson, I think, said they weren't the best people to own the FT anymore, uh, which is quite honest. Mm. Uh, and I mean, someone who used to work there told me that Pearson wasn't really reinvesting very much into the FT from the, the uh, 24 million profit or whatever it was they're making, particularly after after Marjorie Scardino left. And it kind of the interest went more and more towards the uh, education side of the business. The FT is obviously quite unusual because it's not only profitable, but it's editorially well respected as well. Do you think that there's there's something that could change here with this acquisition? I don't think it'll necessarily change from from being successful uh, in a business sense. I mean, the, it's successful in a business sense partly because of the quality of its editorial. You know, the subscription price is is what five pounds odd a, a week. Uh, I, pay, I pay about 50 quid a month, I think. Uh, I yeah, know. yeah, you know, that's a lot more than its, its competitors, you know. And they've got a half million subscribers, so... But if, if you look at the kind of media landscape in terms of the papers, you, a lot of them are still owned by quasi-benevolent people. You know, I'm thinking of the uh, the people like Murdoch and uh, the Lebedevs and so on. Do you think this that Nikkei might end up a kind of corporate version of one of those people where they're seeking to buy influence as well? I mean, maybe, but they are, you know, they are a media company. They run newspapers in Japan. Uh, you know, they're, they're kind of co-owned by a lot of journalists as well, uh, I think. So I don't really see that much reason. They, they're, they're kind of being called the, the mouthpiece of, uh, or that paper's been called the mouthpiece of corporate Japan. But you know, I think that it's a conservative company, but it's not like the FT is particularly radical, you know, either. It's also worth saying that I'm not sure the comparison with the way Murdoch owns his papers, etc., is quite the same because the FT is a financial paper. Mm. So they've they've used uh, their kind of privileged and expert financial commentary to drive their subscriptions. It's not quite the same as saying, you know, subscribe to the Times and you can get Catelyn Moran's column every Friday. If you're a trader, we're saying that this is information you cannot get anywhere else. But do you think Lex might start to, uh, you know, tip a little bit more Japanese companies in future? I mean, in terms of media plurality, is that is are we saying that it's business as usual or do you think that there's something that we should raise an eyebrow at here? I would reserve judgment on that. I think Barney's point was a good one there, that I, I trust FT journalists to test this. I think they will they will push the boundaries of what their new owner will allow. The only thing that I'm slightly concerned about is that um, they've declined to enshrine any kind of independence in the deal. And also there was a suggestion that they might set up a kind of secondary independent board and they haven't done that. Their record is good on this, uh, Nikkei, but we don't know what they'll do with the, the new acquisition. Barney, does that worry you, that they've effectively ruled out that kind of declaration of editorial independence? I mean, uh, as Caroline said, operationally it might not be a concern, but it, it, do you think there's something in it that they've actually refused to rule that in? I think that might, it might have been seen as almost a little insulting if, for mm. them to have to do that, you know, so I think there's, there's an element of that being being bad PR as well, uh, rather than that being the, you know, clue to a evil master plan. But, I mean, the FT is, I mean, it's a niche paper. It's not a mass market paper. But do you think, if I can just put a kind of general question to you, do you think we're going to have fewer newspapers five years from now? I mean, we can't, the independent, there's so many newspapers I've got name that aren't making any money that are propped up uh, by, you know, an editorial trust in the in the form of The Guardian or, you know, Russian oligarchs in the form of The Standard and The Independent. Do you think that this is a sustainable going on? Well, well that's a big question, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, now you're also seeing a lot more native uh, web companies, um, so and lots of different models of funding it depends largely on on the models that that emerge you, you know i think potentially micropayments might start changing things in quite a big way so 
who knows? <laughs> and it's a fair, no, I admire your honesty. Caroline, how can the new statesman thrive in this, this new digital age? Well, we sort of are. Um, our print sales are up year on year, um, unlike almost anyone else in our sector, which is something that... So us lefties are still, yeah, we don't, still we, paper for us, is it? We don't claim to know why, but we're very happy that it's true, of course. Um, it's up something, something like 40% or something year on year. It's quite surprising. And I know you've just said you don't claim to know why, but which kind of makes a mockery my next question, which is which is why? You know, why do you think it is? Do you have any hints or do, do you have any suspicions? We work very hard every week on our cover that appears on the newsstand because we sort of think that's our kind of best marketing thing. And it can mean thousands of extra people buy you or don't buy you if you get it right. So we, I think, probably overanalyze. You know, so, uh, you know, X did really well last time we put it on the cover. So maybe we should do that again. Oh, no, it didn't do well this time. What did we do wrong? We navel gaze quite a lot about that. Um, but I think generally... We've been publishing sort of sharper commentary, longer reads, and that seem, seems to be what people want. And they want it as a package. They, you know, our website does very well. People read articles on it, but they still want that feeling of like, well, I, I have these sort of 30 odd articles that you've published in thing. I want to sit down with that and read that. And do you think that suits a kind of, I hate the phrase slow journalism, do you think it kind of suits a digest, a weekly kind of reflective, contemplative type magazine like yours that's still topical but is not that day's breaking news as it were, like a newspaper? It seems to. And one thing that really interests me in um, my role as online editor is partly we you know, we work and commission on online-only things but we also work to promote the stuff we do in the magazine. And something that people barely read at all online are sort of book reviews but if there's any hint that they might be fewer of them in the magazine, we get outcry from readers. That seems to be an area where people want that kind of survey of what's happening in the publishing world, what's, what are the big literary things, what are the big non-fiction things. Even if they're not actually going to read any of those books, they appreciate having that kind of seven or eight page survey of what's going on. But that's not something you can really replicate online. A, a sort of single 600 word book review, no one's that bothered. And so next, according to recent statistics, Twitter users are much more likely to have backed Scottish independence and voted for Ed Miliband at the general election. In fact, in spite of Scotland voting to stay in the UK, pro-independence yes tweets outnumbered the no tweets by more than one million. Some commentators say this may help Jeremy Corbyn win the Labour leadership as it creates the perception that voters are more left-leaning than they actually are. Caroline, is our perception of public opinion disproportionately influenced by social media and could it help Corbyn's chances? Well, there are several different factors at play there. Um, the first is that social media encourages you to exist in a sort of bubble of people who share similar views to you because you can select who you follow, who, what pages you like, etc., etc. Um, so you just don't encounter people who disagree with who you. Who challenge you, yeah. Who challenge you in the way that you might when you were mostly doing your political discussion in the pub or in your university common room or whatever. Um, then the other thing is where I think it does get onto the subject of influence, is we now have multiple 24-hour news channels and uh, websites and so on that are hungry for content. And so reporting what people have said on Twitter is in itself a way that feeds back into Twitter. So, um, you know, a, a hashtag trending or something like that then gets reported that then makes it trend. So there's a kind of uh, circular effect there that makes things seem bigger than they are. Whether that actually influences how people vote, I'm not sure about. I do think it, it influences how people are perceived to vote. So if you exist in a kind of lefty Twitter bubble and you think everyone is voting like you are, you were probably pretty surprised on May the 8th or just after the Scottish referendum. There's also this um, 
colleague of mine, Helen Lewis, wrote a great column about this in mm. the New Statesman last week, where she talked about this thing of virtue signalling, which is it's it's very kind of trendy and right on to say that you you know you you hate the welfare cap and you think the bedroom tax is awful. That's something that you want to put out there. You want to positively say that. If you happen to think the opposite of those things, you are just less likely to say so. It's a kind of um, 21st century version of the shy Tory effect that mm. killed Neil Kinnock. Um, the kind of bragging that I care more than you. kind of Yeah, signalling that you, you're, you're a good person, mm. that you think the right things. That doesn't necessarily translate at what happens at the ballot box. Um, and on the subject of, of Jeremy Corbyn, um, he surprisingly given his perhaps given his his age and his kind of position in the party and so on has a massive social media following um, particularly on Facebook and whether those people are actually encountering those who disagree with him or support other candidates or whether they're just growing inside their own movement and congratulating themselves we'll only find out in September when the, the ballot actually happens. I agree with you that, that there is an issue here about kind of the traditional media feeding off Twitter and vice versa. They could all uh, almost kind of disappear their own backside, as it were, uh, in terms of the self-references. But so far, it's not mattered in terms of the actual reality. You know, the no vote carried in the Scottish referendum and, and David Cameron is prime minister. So all of these, you know, the, it hasn't actually reflected it. Do you think this is the first time that it could actually affect things in terms of, you know, we're, we're in the middle of an ongoing leadership campaign and the perception is very, very important. Perhaps it's also the first time the leadership, the Labour leadership race has been conducted under this system. It's the first time that just members and affiliates votes has counted. There's no sort of tripartite electoral college where MPs get a much greater weighting or anything like that. So I think that helps as well that people feel, people on Facebook and Twitter feel empowered that what I say might convert someone else who also just has one vote just like me, rather than feeling like, well, we all get to vote in our section, but then if the MPs feel differently, you know, and we, we won't, and there's multiple rounds and it's so complicated, mm. we won't know what's going to happen. I think there is there is probably more to that than there is to the the kind of specifically Twitter bubble feeling of it. I mean, Barney, I read a column by Jonathan Friedland in The Guardian a couple of days ago, and he said that uh, people like me who oppose Jeremy Corbyn for the leadership don't get the campaign, which is, uh, as Caroline mentioned there, it's more about identity politics, isn't it? About saying to the people on social media what you're about and who you are, rather than who you might actually vote for. Yeah, I thought that was uh, that was really interesting uh, about uh, about the identity um, issue. I mean, I think there's a, there's some really interesting work to be done on like on on the Twitter effect and whether it's a kind of you know, the old boomerang and bang bandwagon effect uh, to the polling. It was Twitter, what won it, and all that. Well, yeah, but they kind of used to cancel each other out, right? Mm. So maybe there's something similar going on. But the difference with this this election is that you can sign up for £3. So that's a, quite a big deal. You know? Hashtag Tories for Cobbin. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, both Tories. And, you know, if you're, if, if you're someone who has become disappointed with Labour and is now there's an anti-austerity candidate and you can join up and you can vote for them... And he's the only anti-austerity candidate in any party. Well, apart from the Greens, obviously. that That's how it could have an effect, I think. Apart from that, I mean, it's a lot of people talking to each other. For the, it's definitely, I agree with you, it's definitely the feeding into the media and the, the Corbyn story is the most exciting story in the Labour leadership election, let's face it. So, Do you think Twitter's driving that? Or do you think Twitter's merely reflecting the fact that society has changed and that most people feel disconnected from politics and particularly party politics and the parliamentary process and they're just looking for any candidate who's going to kind of shake things up substantially? 
people are looking for for that and maybe particularly on you know on twitter i mean let's face it as well it's not like twitter's representative of the electorate it's mainly young people uh you know it's web savvy it's a certain type of, of person who's on twitter and so it's not going to be representative of everyone yeah a colleague of mine said twitter these days is just representative of people who tweet I mean, it's quite. I think it was meant in a more yeah. profound way than that. But it is. There's a certain <laughs> type of person that tweets, isn't it? They're they're of the left. They're politically engaged. They're a bit media savvy. It's worth saying as well that the vast majority of of Twitter users don't actually tweet. That the um the kind of I think we probably all use Twitter professionally, sort of as many people in the media do. But the vast majority of people just watch and maybe tweet a few times, and they don't really get many followers, and then they never log in again. There's there's hundreds of thousands of kind of ghost accounts like that. that and I think Twitter can feel quite lonely if you're a normal person <laughs> rather than if it's specifically something that your industry takes part in. And do you think that we're too kind of Twitter-centric in discussions like these because it ignores the wider social media landscape? Uh, you know, a different kind of person goes on Facebook, a different kind of person goes on Pinterest, etc., etc. I think there is an extent to that, that um, Twitter was what early adopting journalists went for when the kind of digital revolution happened but like for instance i found it kind of sad but also hilarious when youtube vloggers became big and all these sort of traditional newspaper journalists going what is youtube when actually (laughs) if you're a 17 year old you've known what youtube is for all your teens and these people who've got millions of subscribers on youtube are far bigger to you than some twitter celebrity it's just a different social network with a different audience but because twitter is the one that's so embedded in the media it's somehow alien and different and to be frowned upon. Do you think there is a little bit of that with the traditional media trying to engage with the kind of modern youth channels like YouTube? I mean, I was I was with Ben Cooper, the controller of Radio 1, about a month or so ago, and it, it struck me that the management team of Radio 1 were literally kind of white, male, middle class, and also like early 40s. And I was thinking, how on earth can they credibly, you know, know what's in the mind of, of, of the youth of today? I have no idea how they manage that. I hope the way they manage it is by hiring people lower down the chain who do know what these things not presuming but i don't know if that's the case um i know with what they've done with newsbeat where they've sort of taken it online there's quite a lot of smart people doing sort of facebook native stuff with that um people they've hired i know um felicity morse they hired from the independent is someone who's previous a, guest on previous this guest. this esteemed podcast no she's she's very savvy about doing that a kind fantastic of stuff job. so i hope that that's how they're doing it with kind of smart hires rather than by sort of guessing and thinking that they know best Barney, are you the are you the smart young person they've hired, or are you an older person who needs to hire a younger person to give them that cred with the youth? <laughs> well, I'm no expert on YouTube, but uh, I mean, I, I came from a kind of startup background, so I was hired initially to be the online news editor. On that note, that's probably a great opportunity for any you know anyone looking to get into journalism who's young and knows how YouTube works and has some ideas about how they can um, make it work for journalism. Then. I'd say being an expert in that is probably going to stand you in good stead. What's your thoughts on the Labour leadership uh, in terms of the overall process, though? I mean, do you think Jeremy could win? And do you think Twitter is uh, having this impact? Or do you think we're just all talking this up and and members are going to do what they were going to do in any event? So someone said to me today, he's got the big MO. He's got the big momentum behind him, obviously. So maybe maybe he could. Uh, The the organisation sounds pretty tight. He's got a lot of volunteers a good operation. He's got some interesting people involved in the campaign. Uh, Simon Fletcher, who's Ken Livingston's former chief of staff. So he could he could do it. <laughs> um, but uh, it's uh, who knows. It's who it's knows? the same same thing. You would have said probably that Ed Miliband had momentum going into the election. 
And look how that turned out. I mean, Caroline, you're from the New Statesman. You ought to have insight to all these kind of things. Come on, make a prediction. Go on the record now. Do you think he'll win? I think either he'll win or he'll come a strong second. I think he could win I as well. I think he could win. Um, Stephen Bush, um, the politics blog editor at the New Statesman, actually published a piece today saying that based on the conversations he's had with constituency members all over the country this weekend, he, he's now putting his his sort of name on the line and saying, yeah, he thinks Jeremy could do it. Um, and there's, that's worth mentioning, actually, that the this process of constituency parties nominating their preferred candidate for leader and deputy leader. And uh, Corbyn is now on, on over 100, I think. Mm, he's well parties. up on Andy Burnham. Well up on Andy Burnham. You know, when we talk about the deputy leadership race, it seems we've, it's pretty much a given that Tom Watson's got it in the bag. He's got fewer nominations than Jeremy Corbyn has. Just the narrative about that campaign is, is different uh, for some reason. I think it's partly the kind of Watson was always the favourite. Corbyn's the kind of surprise. So we want a greater level of confirmation. But um, all the measures we have imperfect as they may be, are pointing to the fact that he could do it. You're a journalist writing for a kind of left-leading magazine, as it were. Do, do you think that, do you not think the media will crucify both of them? I mean, from the media's point of view, it is a pretty gruesome twosome, isn't it? You've got the old lefty Jeremy's leader and the union bruiser as his deputy. I mean, this the, the, the narrative could write itself, couldn't it? This is Labour going back to the Stone Age. Yeah, and that is what people will write, is what people will say, and it does really concern me. Something that gives me a little bit of hope is that if Jeremy does win, he could work as an effective kind of firebreak between the Miliband era and whatever comes next. Um, that if he's leader for, say, a couple of years, and maybe it's dreadful, who knows, that will at least sort of like scorch the earth for something new to come forward. Where I'm not sure that any of the other candidates, maybe Liz Kendall, because she's a newer MP, she wasn't even an MP during the Blair Brown years, but both um, Yvette Cooper and Andy Burnham were ministers in the regime that's been so sort of discredited. Secretaries in, of State, no Secretaries of State. You know, Andy was um, Secretary of State for Health and brought in the PFI arrangements that have now, we're now still seeing the kind of knock-on effects of that in our hospitals. I just don't see how any of them are going to form a kind of break with the past in the way that the party really needs. I mean, Barnum, final question on this to you then. Do you think, as Caroline's point there, is that this is a kind of scorched earth thing, that he might be the equivalent of Neil Kinnock, where he, he probably won't win, but on the other hand, he'll pave the way for whoever the next Blair's going to be? If he wins, he's certainly going to change the debate, isn't he? I mean... No one, no politicians uh, uh, in the mainstream are talking about ending austerity, and I think that's going to be interesting. But he's... as a journalist, do you welcome that drama? Do you welcome the fact that he's going to shake things up a bit? Oh, of course, <laughs> of course. But I, I think it's it's going to be really, really interesting to see see what happens. I mean, I think it's really that there's a big leadership vacuum. I mean, the others just aren't showing any political leadership. And there seems to be a big lack of that in, in, in Labour. Some parts of Labour seem to have given up on political leadership altogether, like Harriet Harman with the welfare vote. Caroline, where's the next story going to be? Whoever wins, where do you think the next story? I mean, we've got a new leader for the Lib Dems. Do we think we've, uh, you know, challenged him on his overly religious beliefs enough yet? Do you think that's going to be the next, the next bombshell that people are going to try and create on Twitter? I think the next test is going to be once the Conservatives actually start trying to implement their legislative programme. Those are the things that are going to test these people. I mean, can you imagine Jeremy Corbyn's first PMQs up against David Cameron? You know, politicians from completely opposite ends of the political spectrum from different generations with absolutely different 
styles of doing things. You know, the first time we get in a, a vote about abortion or gay rights or something like that, how is Tim Farron's much-reduced Lib Dem party going to vote on that? I think that's where the stories are going to come from. And do you think that might harm the Lib Dems' chances in the long run, given that you know the overly kind of religiosity of it? Because in a sense, he doesn't want to he doesn't want to have that as a story, but the media clearly do that they're going to make that the story. I think so. It's actually also something that's a bit of a problem for Andy Burnham, that he's also a man of faith and who's also, you know, he's abstained or not participated or not spoken out on sort of equality issues that Big a lot of... Big of faith schools, for example. Exactly. That a lot of people in his party feel really strongly about. So if he ends up as leader, that's something he's going to have to contend with as well, that this kind of, have we now moved to, at least on the left, moved to a, a point where even having your faith as a kind of private, personal matter doesn't really work for you as a public politician anymore. Nick Clegg was obviously one of the first politicians to be a kind of openly about the fact that he's an atheist. And I think a lot of people in his party really like that about him. So I don't know whether um, the the reverse of that really works for a Lib Dem or a Labour leader anymore. And finally, the BBC's new political editor is Laura Koonsberg, the first woman to hold the role. She takes over from Nick Robinson, who's joining the Today programme. BBC Director General Tony Hall said Laura would bring something of her own style to the corporation. Barney, what do you think should be top of her to-do list, or do you even think you should have an opinion on that? Well, I'm very much a print journalist, so I'm not really sure. Get, get in front of a camera, I'd recommend. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. uh, but, I mean, what I, do you think she'll bring to the role, though? I think uh, it's going to lead to a bit of a change in style. I think what, what Tony Hall's saying in, about her bringing her own style is a kind of encouragement for uh, you know presenters and section editors to uh, to do that on the BBC, uh, like Robert Peston has. I don't think people want a, a robot explaining the news to them. You know, they want uh, they want a real person who's conversational and picks out interesting moments. So I think she'll have, probably have a different style to uh, Nick Robinson. I, I hope she kind of maintains his just infectious glee at like what's going on which has always been been uh, very enjoyable i mean i i think he he apparently got a bit of stick for his tory connections as well you know he was the president of the oxford conservative association i'm and, reading uh, his book at the moment and he he's he rolls his eyes everyone says that because it was like yeah. 30 odd years ago do you know what i mean he's never done anything since but you know he's he was still he's still a um, middle-aged white man who went who did PPE at Oxford you know <laughs> so whereas uh, you know along with most of the political establishment exactly exactly uh, whereas you know uh, Laura grew up in, in Glasgow and studied at Edinburgh so that that'll be a bit of a change in background Caroline do you think she's going to be a breath of fresh air like as Barney was saying there she's not the the typical white male middle class PP from Oxford type no absolutely and the fact that she's from Scotland as well I think will be interesting given the way our political landscape has been developing the last There'll be few huge years. demonstrations against her personally, like there was with Nick, if you remember. Well, I don't know about that. I, I guess being from the BBC, she'll have to maintain strict impartiality at all times. But just the just the fact that she she has that background. I mean, same goes for Andrew Marr, actually. The fact that, that that's where he's from as well, I think, has always given a kind of extra depth to when he talks about it on his show. The fact that he has a kind of... He feels like he has a personal stake in the outcome of uh, the Scottish independence debate, whether or not he gets he gets to air it or not. But um, no, I've, I've always thought that Laura would be a great choice for political editor because she hasn't always done politics. You know, she had a stint as being ITV's business editor, for instance. And whilst I think the skills in trying to get stories in the city and trying to get stories in Westminster are very similar, she's got, I think, probably a larger contacts book than people normally have going into that role because she's got all those CEOs and so on that she's been interviewing in the meanwhile. Well, Skies for Sile Islam, of course, didn't come from a political background either. So do you think this is a new trend now? I really hope so, because I'm personally not a big fan of the Westminster lobby system. I think there are some great people working 
in it, but I don't like the kind of um, insularity it encourages. And I think the fact that some of the kind of brightest rising stars in political reporting have not spent their whole careers inside it suggests that I'm not the only one who feels like that, Um, that kind of editors and higher ups are also looking at the kind of stuff that people like Faisal are doing and going, well, we want some of that. We don't necessarily want just to hear what the lobby briefing was every day, which is perhaps more traditionally what the role's been. And do you think that the role itself is changing insofar as if you look at the... I'm reading Nick Robinson's book at the moment, and one of the things that struck me is just how often he was criticised personally, not just by the kind of braying yeses on Twitter, but also, you know, by the former First Minister of Scotland. I mean, often his reporting became the top story. It became a kind of meta story. I think that goes with the job. I don't think that was in any way a reflection on Nick. I think that it comes with sort of from great with great power comes great responsibility with that job. That it, both in the sense that if the prime minister wants to sit down with anyone and say something, you are probably his first choice, just because that's the kind of prestige that job has. Also, if people want to have a go at the way the BBC's done something, you're going to be the lightning rod for that. I hope that Laura doesn't get just more of that because she's a woman all sort of previous sense of how women in public life get treated, particularly on the internet, suggests that she probably will, which is sad. But, you know, I'm sure she's more than capable of rising above that. There's not BBC bias in the sense that people like to accuse it of being biased in favour of one party or another. The BBC is biased towards incumbency, mm. that, you know, it, it is of the establishment and therefore it is going to give more time to the establishment. That's never how people want to see it when they feel like their thing hasn't had enough time at the top of the news at 10. Well, Nick, in, in his book, says that one of the things he took as a, as a mark of his impartiality is that often after his report on the 10, he'd get texted by, you know, Linton Crosby and Alistair Campbell accusing him of bias. And I, I always used to think that was quite good, actually, that if both sides of the debate think you were unfair to them, then frankly, you've done well. Absolutely. That's sort of how we always feel at the New Statesman as well, actually, that if we've had someone from the left of the Labour Party and someone from the Conservative Party have a go at us, then we've probably pitched it about right. Barney, do you think it should even be news that uh, the BBC have appointed a woman as their political editor? I mean, it, clearly it's noteworthy because they've never had one before. Or do, do you think do you think this is something that we shouldn't even be discussing, the gender of the of the political editor of the BBC? Well, exactly. I, th- I think that's why it's news, isn't it? Because they, they just haven't had one before and that, and that makes it uh, an issue. And why do you think they haven't? Do you think it's just because it's the establishment and these things take a while? Or do you think there is a, a kind of slightly misogynist bias in the hiring of these, these senior roles? Maybe there's a, a problem a bit further down the chain as well because there's been a discussion about people that have got passed over for this job as well, you know, James Landale and uh, Norman Smith. And so maybe th- that shows that there's a bit of a problem like further down, that there's there's not as many senior women, you know, and you've still got Andrew Neil and, and Andrew Marr, you know, heading up shows as well. Women working at the BBC certainly think there's there's kind of more to be done, you know. I don't, just coming on that, I, I don't think... I that there's a kind of endemic sexism at the BBC per se. I don't think it's the case that executives kind of look at female journalists and go, you're rubbish because you're a woman. But I think there's a kind of broader problem across all media and beyond with this sort of structural sexism, the idea that the qualities that we look for in sort of um, high calibre people are in our heads kind of coded as male. So when you think of someone as kind of respectable and um, authoritative, you think naturally of a man so they're not 
being prejudiced against women because they're women. They're just thinking, well, we want someone who's really authoritative and very well known. And well, that just happens to be a man. You know, that is that kind of reverse problem. And how can you counter out that? I mean, I've been a party member of the Labour Party for many, many years. And of course, we have all women shortlist famously. I mean, that's a very much um, a process that means you can't hide, you can't shortlist a, a male candidate in a winnable seat. Is, is it something that like that that we need to, to kind of counteract any, as you might say, subconscious systemic bias against women? Yes, frankly, yes, because the Labour Party didn't jump immediately to all women shortlists. They tried 50-50 candidate shortlists. People, uh, parties still, 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 still pick men. They yep. tried just having one man on a shortlist with a whole load of women. They still picked the man. So unfortunately, if you want radical change, you have to do something radical. And given this kind of subconscious bias towards what's perceived as what's always been authoritative in the past, you have to just take that out of the equation. And things like all women shortlists or having explicitly advertising a job. I mean, you can do this under the Race Relations Act, for instance, mm. on on a race prejudice. Say we we want a BME person in this job. You can do that, and the law makes that possible. And do you think, given the unique way the BBC is funded, given that it is an, in effect an arm of the state, that it has a duty to ensure that newsrooms are gender balanced and, and adequately represent black and minority ethnic people too? Absolutely. And actually, the BBC is sort of slightly lagging behind on this. Sky is really, really good at this. Um, sometimes, when you look at their lineup, you've almost got like a kind of token white man rather than the other way around, which is brilliant. And they do things like, I know they um, they support kind of apprenticeships and so on that are specifically aimed at BME communities. And that's the kind of stuff you have to do. You have to really kind of publicly commit yourself to it and then follow through. You almost have to um, have to do it in public because if it happens behind closed doors, as it often does at the BBC, you, you sort of sense that they think it's important, but you don't ever really see the results and it's all a bit nebulous. You want people to kind of come out and say we think this is important and this is what we're doing and those two things go together. Barney, final question on this then. Where do you think the BBC's political coverage should evolve? Because, I mean, we've clearly got, you know, the job of political editor is huge now, much bigger than it ever was. There's so many different, you know, you've got Five Live, News Channel, you've got the Six and the Ten and the One, then you've got all the kind of programmes on PM, the blogging, News Online. I mean, in terms of the sheer scope of the job and the number of outlets, I mean, how many hours in the day would you need? (laughs) Well, I'm I'm not really sure, but, uh, you know, I think that they've got to have a a, a wide range of, of stuff. But I think... Uh, I mean, I don't know, to me, the, the political editor is the person who comes on and, and, and explains the th- things. You know, I, um, I think it was, it was interesting talking about Scotland as well, because I think one of the things with the, the job is going, you know, taking politics beyond Westminster now, and particularly to devolved, uh, devolved assemblies, if they've got more power, more could be done on the, on the Scottish Parliament um, and, and holding people to account for that as well. Also with um, a devolution to cities, you know, Manchester City Council is getting a lot more uh, powers as well so that'll be important to, to cover too also broadening the scope out to, to Europe as well because that's just becoming more and more important and figures like Jean-Claude Juncker and um, and Donald Tusk have taken their jobs and made them much bigger and they're not people who are part of a foreign organization foreign government you know they're actually deciding what goes on in us as well and with the news stories becoming more and more European uh, you know just, just take migration uh, the Greek crisis all these things are going to affect us in a big way. And, and of course, domestic politics is going to go that way with the EU referendum big time. So it's going to be quite important to to make sure that you're covering that as well. And, and not just as a kind of foreign thing, but something that is increasingly part of our 
political system, unless we vote no. <laughs> I was going to say, but in terms of that debate, Danny, do, do you think do you think that it's going to be part of the course now that the political edge of the BBC is going to be covering increasingly not nasty, but a contest between two opposing parties where there, there can be quite a bit of animosity? So there was the Scottish independence referendum, which got quite nasty towards the end. The EU vote as well, you know, there does, there's there's quite a lot of moderate voices in the middle, but there are also a lot of very shouty people at the extreme end of both sides of the argument. Do you think that they're going to hijack the debate? That's very true. I, I mean, I think because these are big and emotive issues, you know. And I think the BBC political editors has got to kind of rise above that a bit, I, I think, really. I mean, it kind of goes back to our discussion on, on, on Twitter, really, and, and how much it's going to shape shape the media. And I, I think there's, it, there's scope for a reasonable debate there without really getting too involved in that. So, Caroline, final point to you then. Do, do you think that, uh, I mean, there's clearly a big job to be done here, isn't there? Absolutely. And one thing that I really hope Laura does do, picking up on what Barney said, is that the BBC is resourced like no one else. You know, they've got people at every single level reporting. Some would say over-resourced, but we've done that one before. Re- reporting <laughs> on every level of government, you know. Um, but, and yet, the kind of news at 10 can feel very kind of Westminster-centric. What you hope that um, Laura will be able to do is sort of pull the stories up through the chain that are kind of making big news on a lower or regional or local level that she'll be able to say, actually, this thing that happened in Holyrood today might seem like a devolved regional story, but actually it tells us massively about, you know, the way Nicola Sturgeon's thinking and the way she might negotiate with David Cameron in future. That's the kind of stuff that you sort of want the person at the top of the chain to be doing. Well, guys, I think that's it, unfortunately. We've run out of metaphorical tape, so it just, uh, just remains for me to ask how people can kind of follow your work on social media and catch up with you. Caroline, shall we start with you first? What's your Twitter handle and how do people visit the website and see you work for the New Statesman? So you can find me on Twitter as at C underscore Crampton and uh, you can find everything I do for the web uh, on newstatesman.com. Barney? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Barney Guyton and uh, you can find Newsweek Europe at europe.newsweek.com. And for those that want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Paul W.R. Blanchard. You can also go to the Media Focus website at mediafocus.org.uk, unsurprisingly, and you can leave your email address there in the box and receive a shiny update once a fortnight letting you know when the new podcast is out. But that's it. Thanks ever so much for listening. I'm Paul Blanchard, the associate producer producer was Jordan Greenaway and the social media coordinator was Hannah Thompson. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. A Big Things Media Production.